I'm Taz. I'm Sam. I'm Caleb. I'm Matt. I'm Ola. I'm Victor. I'm Andrew. I'm Chase. And welcome to Discovery Bible Study on Front Porch Report. Today, we are going to be true to our name as a small group Bible study and gather a very diverse group of people together to study God's Word. And we're going to be in Ezra chapter 9. So, without further ado, let's read the text. Starting in verse 1. After these things had been done, the leaders approached me and said, The people of Israel, the priests, and the Levites have not separated themselves from the surrounding peoples, whose detestable practices are like those of the Canaanites, Hethites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. Indeed, the Israelite men have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed may become mixed with the surrounding peoples. The leaders and the officials have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this report, I tore my tunic and robe, pulled out some of the hair from my head and beard, and sat down devastated. Everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles, while I sat devastated until the evening offering. And at the evening sacrifice I arose up from my heaviness, And having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God. And I said, My God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face toward you, my God, because your iniquities are higher than our heads and our guilt is as high as the heavens. Our guilt has been terrible from the days of our ancestors until the present. Because of our iniquities, we have been handed over, along with our kings and priests, to these surrounding kings, and to the sword, captivity, plundering, and open shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, grace has come from the Lord our God to preserve a remnant for us, and give us a stake in his holy place. Even in our slavery, God has given us a little relief and light to our eyes. Though we are slaves, our God has not abandoned us in our slavery. He has extended grace to us in the presence of Persian kings, giving us relief so that we can rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins, to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, our God, what can we say in light of this? For we have abandoned the commandments. You gave through your servants the prophets, saying, The land you are entering to possess is an impure land. The surrounding peoples have filled it from end to end with their uncleanliness, by their impurity, and detestable practices. So do not give your daughters to their sons in marriage, or take their daughters for your sons. Never pursue their welfare or prosperity, so that you will be strong. Eat the good things of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. And after all that is come upon us for our evil deeds, and for our great trespass, seeing that thou, our God, has punished us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us such deliverance as this. Should we break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit these detestable practices, wouldn't you become so angry with us that you would destroy us, leaving us neither remnant nor survivor? Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we survive as a remnant today. Here we are before you with our guilt, though no one can stand in your presence because of this. So as we've done several weeks on this podcast, we'll be doing the Discovery Bible Study Method, 
uh, in its original intended setting. So this is awesome. And it's a chance to breed conversation with a series of questions. Hopefully you're familiar with these questions as we've gone through them through eight chapters of Ezra now. So we'll start off with the first question, which what does this passage say about God? And so does anyone have some observations about that? Uh, I think it says that God's merciful and righteous and regardless of what we do, you know, he just, uh, he understands and he forgives us if we ask. Verse 15, O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous. For we remain yet escaped as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. Um, I'll say verse 9. Though we are slaves, our God has not abandoned us in our slavery. He has extended grace to us in the presence of the Persian kings, given us relief so that we can rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. So what I understood from this is it's saying we can still go through tough times and bad times doesn't, but that doesn't mean God has abandoned us. He's always there. Uh, so we shouldn't really necessarily see our suffering as abandonment. It can just be God is just with us, maybe using it as a chance to build. One of the things I really appreciate is how Ezra starts his prayer because he, he constantly says, my God specifically in verse six he says it two times right and it's that personal connection that right that that our the god of the bible that we read is a personal god that we have a relationship with it's not this you know figment on a cloud right it it is it is a personal god that we can call out to and say say my god like this is a personal relationship and i really do appreciate how ezra starts his prayer off that way We've been talking a lot as we've studied this book about how careful the people have been to sort of maintain holiness standards throughout in the way that they pursue worship and um, even in the type of people that they bring in to, to perform those acts. And here we see kind of the first big example of people going against those holiness standards that um, have been emphasized so much. And uh, we see in his prayer why they've been pursuing them this way because it says that uh, in verse 14 it says wouldn't you become so angry with us that you would destroy us leaving neither remnant or survivor and so that's a prayer of gratitude to God for leaving a remnant for his grace but also an acknowledgement of the fear that they had that God would eventually get to the point where he would wouldn't forgive and would destroy them utterly and you have to remember Ezra's context here. Ezra's coming out of, you know, we taught last chapter, you know, 140 some odd years mm-hmm. after the Babylonian conquest, right? So Ezra's coming out of this with fairly recent history going, okay, God, we messed up last time and you barely left a remnant when Babylon came and took us, right? So, I mean, if if we keep messing up, how much worse is it going to get? Um, yeah, so I like... Uh, in this passage, it reminds me um, of Deuteronomy 28. And in Deuteronomy, 20, in Deuteronomy 28, God talks about uh, the blessings and the curses for Israel based on their faithfulness. And this is part of the covenant that he's made with them. And you see it clearly here in, in Ezra 9. And <laughs> that I think it's 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 easy. It's, it's easy to remember that God being faithful when things are going right, when things are easy, and 
but I love what, what Victor touched on earlier that um, even in judgment, God is still faithful and that he actually show, he shows his faithfulness in judgment as well, specifically with Israel. And uh, this can be, I think, difficult and even offensive sometimes to us. Uh, but I think it's always just a good reminder to look back on that. And, and Israel is seeing this in this very passage um, as well. Yeah, and sometimes being faithful means following through on your word, even if it's a, it's a word that leads to negative consequences. And, you know, we see that with psychologists that say it, when parenting, you're supposed to, if you set a punishment, you're supposed to follow through on it. Otherwise, your kids will start to see, you know, any any boundaries or rules is, as completely malleable. And God is a, God is a wise father and is willing to follow through when necessary to ensure that we have a real understanding of, of who he is. So those are some great responses to our first question, and now we're going to move on to the next question, which is what does this passage tell us about people? And this can be, what does it explicitly say about the people in the passage? What inferences can be drawn towards humanity generally? or even about you know the main character what do we learn about Ezra for example so i'd say about people um it just shows that sometimes people are ashamed to go to god because of what they think they did or you know the gravity of what they did but in reality god accepts anyone that's you know willing to come to him there's a really interesting statement that is made through the actions of Ezra about communal guilt in this passage because here he is just finding out about something that other people are doing and his response is to tremble and sit devastated become you know go through a ritual humiliation period and then cry out to God saying I am ashamed embarrassed to lift my face toward you because our iniquities are higher than our heads and our guilt and so even though he's a holy man who's learned in the scriptures who's coming to uh, bring about revival he counts himself as among the guilty and in an individualistic culture like America that's something that we definitely don't want to do, right? We, we want to say, okay, so if someone's sinning, that's them, and we, we can separate ourselves from that. We can box them into some sort of an other. But um, Ezra here doesn't do that. He leans into the collective guilt and um, sees it as his role, not only to pray for someone else's forgiveness, but to pray for his own forgiveness and you know the community in general that he considers himself to be a part of. And that's a really good point. And we see the dichotomy that I hinted at earlier when Ezra starts off his prayer with my God in verse 6. And we see the transition in verse 8 where he starts saying our God, our God. And so we, we see that dichotomy that you're pointing out there. And I really do appreciate how Ezra is taking this seriously. It also goes to show how short-lived people's memory is because, you know, as we just said, 140 some odd years earlier, uh, we're we're coming around again to the same problem, and uh, it's really interesting because the whole Old Testament is kind of this this cat and mouse game of okay, when are we going to get it? When are we going to get it? Um, and eventually Jesus comes, but we'll get to that. 
And that is even further emphasized by the fact that the people groups that they mention in those first couple of verses, the Perizzites and the Hethites and the Egyptians and Jebusites, those are the people groups that were in the land of Canaan back during the time of the Torah and Exodus. And so what he's doing by calling back to them is saying, this is the same stuff that's been going on for over a thousand years at this point, and you're still falling into those habits and temptations. Based on what you just said, I just think that shows the nature of God, because from I think from Ezra's point of view, he's saying, I think towards the end of the chapter, maybe verse 15, he was like, um, I can't remember exactly how he put it, but he said something about, should we intermarry or do those same sins again? It's 14, okay. And uh, I think he was alluding to the fact that maybe they didn't have any more chances left with God. And But he also, earlier in the chapter, was talking about the various people and, like, generations down committing the same crimes. So it just goes to show that God's mercy is almost infinite, regardless of how it may look in the present for the person, I guess. And um, as you relate that to people, that could even speak to people have a value to God that goes beyond their actions. And so even as we feel worthless ourselves because of things that we do or fail to do, God still sees the, the value of the image of God that has been placed on us. And, you know, that might be one of the reasons why he's so merciful and so gracious to us. As we, we move on, and I alluded to a little bit ago, the Old Testament is, is leading forward to the New Testament. As we as Christians uh, understand how the history interplays to the coming of Jesus and how important it is. And so as we're reading the Old Testament, there are these moments that call forward to the gospel yet to come. And so we want to take time now to see if we can spot anything in this text that is alluding to the Messiah yet to come as the Jews knew him, as we know him now, Jesus. Yeah, so as we've kind of seen in um, this passage, uh, it kind of starts talking out, talking about how um, in verse 2, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, um, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faith, this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men have, has been foremost. Um, and this reminds me again of Deuteronomy, um, when there's this really clear uh, prescription about uh, laws concerning Israel's kings in Deuteronomy 17, and talking about how we should not acquire many wives or excessive silver and gold, and these kinds of things. And so he's prescribing things specifically for Israel's kings, who are supposed to be, of course, the leaders of Israel in uh, both word and deed. And... Uh, you know, so just reading this, being reminded of that, I'm thinking of uh, the true king that then comes, Jesus, uh, who will be enthroned, and and he's the one that walked this out perfectly and showed not just to the disciples, but in, in the way of, as Israel was called to do, he followed the Torah, the, the law, and showed them how to actually, what they will eventually do, bless the nations um, in their conduct and show them how to live um, life that there is a better way and so that's one way that I can see the the gospel kind of taking place though a roundabout one <laughs> I think what it says about God too is that he he continually um, redeems um, his people according to his plan I think 
when I think of intermarriage, I think of Ruth and how Boaz uh, married Ruth, a Moabite, as her kinsman redeemer, and how Ruth and Boaz, or Boaz was um, in the line of Jesus, and how even when Boaz married Ruth, um, God still redeemed it, and it was still part of his story and his narrative of, of him being in control, and there was always a plan for Redeemer from the beginning. One of the beautiful gospel connections I see is verse 15. Um, because it, it, it begins with a very personal name for God. They, they say Yahweh Adonai or Lord God of Israel. Uh, and, and that was the one of the utmost personal names for God is they had Adonai, which was casual, and they had Yahweh, which was to be taken very seriously, which we see in our Bibles as God and Lord in all capitals, respectively. But when, when you see the Lord God or Yahweh Adonai together, it was a very serious thing. And he, Ezra goes to say, You are righteous, for we survive as a remnant today. Here we are before you with our guilt, though no one can stand in your presence because of this. And we see that condemnation that Ezra is talking about and that recognition of sin. And we are still in that unless we have Jesus. And because we have Jesus, because Jesus came, because Jesus was the way uh, the writer of Hebrews puts it, the propitiation of our sin, we are able to stand before God in his presence, not by our own doing, not of our own righteousness, not of any merit of our own, but the fact that, that we are covered in the blood of the Lamb. And so when we come to Jesus and he takes all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our condemnation, and imputes on us his righteousness and his character. Uh, it is the most rotten deal in all of history for him, but it, it is the most amazing thing that we have. And and just that amount of guilt that Ezra's recognizing is harking forward to the day that we can expunge that guilt, not by the shedding of blood from a lamb, but the shedding of blood of God's Son. Also, speaking of the actual sort of crime that was committed that has led to this great confession of guilt, the, you know, the marrying of non-Israelite people um, between all these people, holiness and being set apart was very important to Israel. And it was a way of sort of protecting the the purity of their worship because if you marry someone who follows different gods chances are you're going to be influenced by their worldview your children will be influenced by that worship and that's what we see throughout the old testament idolatry was an absolutely massive and devastating sin that really consumed israel to the point where it was taken over by babylon and the beautiful thing about the gospel is as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, there's the part at the beginning that everyone knows that talks about how our salvation is through grace and not works, but after that it talks about the reconciliation between Israel and the Gentiles. And we now live in a world where that separation and that pure holiness and the inability to marry outside of your group or form lasting true relationships outside of your group, that prohibition is no longer there because Jesus has reconciled us. It's no longer about um, lifting up some standard of holiness to, to keep you separate from other people. It's about sharing the good news of Christ. And that allows for a lot of 
breaking and bending of boundaries. And, you know, in today's Judaism, in today's Christianity, this would be so much less of a threat because everyone is welcome into the family of God. Just off of what both of you said about grace uh, in chapter 9, it said, He has extended grace to us in the presence of the Persian kings, giving us relief. Um, also in chapter, I think in chapter 8, it also says, uh, God to preserve a remnant for us and give us a stake in this holy place. Uh, that just alludes to the gospel, basically, with uh, Jesus, because uh, Ezra seems to acknowledge that they need grace, because later on in the chapter he says the iniquities is more than uh the forgiveness or i can't remember how to put it but uh so he's acknowledging grace and i I think that's basically what jesus signifies that you know our sins are great but you know he's greater and then signifies his presence in the new testament yeah, and that's why this question is a part of um, the Discovery Bible Study Method, because it's important to recognize that the God that we are talking about is consistent and faithful. Uh, that's what you were talking about earlier, Chase, about his faithfulness. And one aspect of that is that grace and forgiveness in the gospel didn't spring out of nowhere in the New Testament. It is a culmination of a plan and a process that has been ongoing throughout the Old Testament. And so you can find elements of it in almost any place that you look. And if you just have the eyes to see them and, and, and searching to find them, you'll you'll see it just infused within the very water. It's not that we served a different kind of God in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. They're, they're the same God, and this was his plan all along. And, and yeah, I think just going off what, uh, what you're saying there, Taz, um, kind of wanted to draw to light what some of the other guys have already mentioned. Uh, but in this passage in Ezra 9, uh, it says many times, um, talking about this remnant that God is leaving, uh, to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold, says in 8. And then uh, in 15, as, as Sam was saying, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped and this is alluding, uh, um, I, I'm reminded of Jeremiah 31, uh, when uh, he's talking about uh, what we call, or what's commonly known as the New Covenant. And it says in 3131, uh, pretty easy to remember that way. <laughs> Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Uh, My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And then he goes on to say, um, that he says, Thus says the Lord in verse 35, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And then he says, If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. 
Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and, and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. And, um, and so you see that his faithfulness uh, is tied to this covenant. And this is something, just to take it full circle, uh, that Jesus references, uh, for example, in, um, in Matthew 26, uh, at the Lord's Supper, and he says, um, starting in 2626, 26, <laughs> got a theme here. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and we, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And this covenant is referring to the new covenant um, that Jeremiah talked about. And this is part of what Ezra is saying when he's talking about how the Lord is faithful um, to this remnant to the extent that <laughs> more faithful than uh, the sun rising or setting. And um, I think this can give us confidence and hope going forward. So next we're going to move into a fun little section that Sam and I have taken to calling Solve the World. Basically, it's like fun observations or questions that arise from the text that uh, just make you ponder. Or uh, maybe it's just a legitimate question like, why do they do this? What's going on there? Verse 2 references a group of people called the Heathites. Is that where we get the term heathen from? I want to know. That that I, I was reading that and I'm like, man, like everyone's like, you bunch of heathens. And I'm like, man, I wonder if that's where they got it from. I don't know if that's the case. Might need to do research, but man. It says that Ezra pulled out some of the hair from his head and some of the hair from his beard. And I'm wondering what percentage that was. Like, is it, d- does it qualify if you like get two or three good ones or do you have to? Are they, like, at the same time, so the portion of the beard is missing on the right, but the portion of the head is missing on the left? <laughs> this is something that always intrigued me. Um, the people alluded to being unclean, to say the least. Is, uh, isn't there a means of salvation for them in the Old Testament? Because if Israel is trying to keep itself apart from them, then how do they come to know yeah, and that's, that's an excellent question. And if you take some statements in the Old Testament at face value, it makes it seem like the only people who can come to know God are the Israelites. But when you look at the narrative, that you see people like Ruth and like Rahab, who were Canaanites, who were not Israelites, but who express a respect for God or a fear for God. And both of those two ended up being in the genealogy of Jesus. But it is very common in the Old Testament to find a story of Israelites being unfaithful and a non-Israelite being faithful. Another great example of that is um, Balaam and Balak. So Balak was a Canaanite king who got a sort of witch doctor sort of guy to, he paid him to call down a curse on Israel. And he says, I can't curse them because God's blessing them. And that happens several times. And it's an example of 
how a non-Israelite is being faithful to bless Israel while Israel is down there kind of complaining and they're doing their whole wandering in the wilderness thing. And so, you know, is there a way of salvation for these unclean people? Absolutely there is. And it comes through, honestly, the same means as the Israelites, having faith in God, fearing him, obeying his commands. And in the New Testament, we see a lot of examples of people who are described as fearing the Lord. There's um, Roman centurions who do that. There are people that are called proselytes who don't become fully Jewish themselves, but who come to the, um, Jerusalem to worship. The Ethiopian eunuch is an example of that as well. So, And what, what's interesting here is there were provisions in the law for people to come to Israel. Uh, you'll see it referenced in the laws as sojourners who are among you. And there were laws and provisions for people to be integrated into the nation of Israel to serve Yahweh. Uh, and another thing that's really interesting is, is this question comes up in the New Testament in Galatians. And they're talking with Paul. And Paul's like, hey, that's not how that works. Because the Abrahamic covenant says that he is a blessing to all nations and all peoples. And the Abrahamic covenant, which is 400 years prior to the Sinai covenant... The Sinai Covenant does not negate the Abrahamic Covenant, if that makes sense, right? So the Sinai Covenant is the covenant that they made at Mount Sinai after getting out of Egypt that brings us the law as we know it, the 618 commands that we have in the, the quote, law, right? But that doesn't negate, and, and Paul's making this point, and mind you, Paul is one of the utmost Jewish scholars studying under the feet of one of the most lead Pharisees at the time, Gamaliel, right? And so... Paul is saying that that the Sinai covenant does not negate the Abrahamic covenant, that, that Abraham was to be a blessing and his descendants were to be a blessing to all nations and all people. So there were provisions for people outside the law, and, and as they both mentioned, Rahab and uh, Ruth were excellent instances where people integrated into the nation of Israel. There was no problem there. The problem of the integration was, do you integrate into serving Yahweh or do you continue to hold to your God? And that was the issue there. It was never, you know, could foreigners come to the nation of Israel? That was not the issue. The issue is you can come if you're going to worship Yahweh and Yahweh alone. There, there's reason why one of the first commandments, right? I love how we say Ten Commandments, but there's actually like 618 of them. But in the Ten Commandments that we colloquially know them as, but the you know the ones that Moses brings down, the first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. And that, that's pretty spot on the nose there. I don't know. This kind of reminds me of a story back whenever I worked as a camp counselor and I had some second grade kids and we were going through teaching them the Ten Commandments. And obviously we got to the first one and said, you shall have no other gods before me. And just how we see the Israelites go back and forth and they're confused and they will follow God. And sometimes they'll integrate into these other communities and kind of tack on their gods with them. And that's where the, un, the it kind of gets unclean. Well, I had a kid one day, uh, we were doing this at the end of the, the camp where they stand up and they say what they learned. And, uh, this kid was pretty quiet, but I remember teaching him throughout the week and he decided he wanted to stand up and share what he learned. So he stands up and he goes, this week at camp, I learned that I need to believe in Jesus first, and then I can worship other gods too. Because no other gods before Jesus, but if these gods are after Jesus, then it's okay. And I just remember thinking, oh my goodness, 
I have confused this child. <laughs> and I looked at him and I was like, great. I, we need to talk after this. And he goes, oh, no, I said something wrong. I'm wrong. And just having to come back to him and share with him the true meaning of that and that no other God before me means he is the God alone. He is our God. And so it was just interesting remembering the modern day confusion in a child and how that can very much reflect on how Israel was going on back then and how things in our daily life can be gods of our own. And anyways, I love kids. Like their questions are just so oh, great. Great, It's great. I think one thing that's interesting is just kind of the shift in starting chapter nine here. And then also in chapter 10 of Ezra, how he kind of goes away from what Ezra thought God's plan was, which was the return of the people from the exile. You know, they get a decree from Artaxerxes and the people are coming back, and then chapter 9, they kind of fall back into the detestable practices of the Israelites and the Torah and then Joshua and Judges. And I think, you know, for Ezra, it was such a disappointment. But even as you see him in anguish in this chapter and the next one, the realization that, that the Israelites would be given grace by God, but recognizing that eventually we would be given that same grace uh, through Jesus, I think is something that's really interesting. It kind of goes back to, you know, what you see with the application from the Old Testament to the New Testament. All right, and finally, we are going to uh, move to what is perhaps the most poignant and important question that we ask, which is what applications can we draw from this text and bring into our lives because it's all nice and good to speak academically and point out the intertextuality and all that but the bible is not a an adventure novel and it's not a an academic textbook it's something that is meant to shape our lives so what is something from this text that we can carry with us into you know even just the next week Maybe not just for next week, but like a verse you hear in every single marriage, um, marriage and singles sermon is Second Corinthians uh, 6.14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. I just see a whole theme of really Christians are, are supposed to marry other Christians um, because I'm not married, but you can uh, fall into you know other ways of life that um, aren't glorifying to the Lord and not following the Lord. Um, and we just, man, see it throughout history that it's always supposed to intermarry with uh, people who have the same beliefs as you and um, worship the same God as you. It's kind of interesting to see throughout the ages, it's still the same. Still back on that concept of uh, grace, uh, I think it's important that we recognize that God uh, gives us grace and through Jesus. Uh, he has mercy, but like Ezra, we should also recognize that we are incredibly sinful and we tend to fall back in the same by nature fall back in the same bad habits and just recognizing that nature should be a deterrent or help you reduce sin but also uh, acknowledge your nature so if you don't acknowledge your nature then you tend to just assume that you have infinite mercy you can keep on doing the same thing but if you are like Ezra like he was 
and you acknowledge and you have that kind of fear in the back of your mind that you know one day he's not gonna forgive me and something's gonna happen in a way i know it's not that but like just have that same fear that ezra had for god i feel like that mindset helps you you know stay true to god uh real quick just going off of what he said um i kind of learned that you can't work for your grace you know it's a gift and i mean we do have to live in his principles but you can't really work for your grace you know it's not like something that you can you know just uh clock in and clock out for but as long as you're in his family i guess you know the grace is available it's what i'm getting but i think bearing in mind that we are all sinners what i take away from this is that i don't have to be afraid of bearing that communal guilt that i was talking about earlier and that ezra obviously wasn't committing the sin that he was confessing to the lord but he felt the weight of it upon himself and asked for forgiveness on behalf of the community but also didn't separate himself from them and as a point of sort of human pride i might try to disassociate myself from sins that i don't feel like i'm necessarily committing but recognizing my own sinfulness recognizing that god has been giving me grace over and over has been giving everyone associated with me grace over and over allows me to not hide from those areas of communal guilt and instead to step into them and to be a part of seeking the solution and seeking healing in in the next chapter especially we're gonna see how ezra kind of steps into solutions but here you know it's an example of how i can i can step into confession even for things that i don't feel like i'm directly connected to and a really you know poignant example of that right now is just the race issue that we have going on in in the united states and across the world especially you know even if i don't feel like i'm actively participating i am still a part of institutions and a culture where these things happen and rather than pushing that aside um i can i can step into the guilt knowing that there's grace enough for me and for all of us from god but also that being part of the solution doesn't mean acting like i'm it's not there or that i'm not a part of it just to add to what you said having that mindset also of ezra like communal guilt can help us reach other people that need the gospel also because if we don't have that mindset then we just separate ourselves from the sin and we don't actually do what we're told to do which is go out and you know preach the gospel or something all right guys thank you all so much for joining us this week it was a really fruitful discussion and this is the kind of shape that a bible study can take you know you don't have to have eight people all in a room it can be a smaller or a bigger group but there is such a rich vein to mine in the bible for wisdom and application and knowledge in the gospel so thank you all for hanging with us this week next week sam and i will be back with another episode of middle ground we'll be discussing 
some current events and their Christian worldview application. If you haven't had a chance to listen to last week's Middle Ground, Taz and his fiance Dorcas had an excellent discussion on cultural integration, and so I really recommend going to listen to that. It was a wonderful discussion. And two weeks from now is going to be our last study in Ezra. We'll be finishing up the book. And so please let us know if you have any feedback about what book you want us to do next. You can uh, email us. We are thefrontporchreport at gmail.com. That's thefrontporchreport at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at us on Twitter. We are at frontreport. Did you know that Psalm 7510 is a direct prophecy to the Texas A&M TU debate? Who says, I will cut off the horns of the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. This is a direct prophecy that Texas A&M is the righteous and the horns of UT will be cut off. Saw them off, baby. Unless the horns of the righteous are UT's horns. And so they aren't the ones that are being cut off. Yeah, I've never seen an Aggie grow horns, so sorry, bud. <laughs> Front Porch Report is a passion project by a group of people who love Jesus and want to spread his word through in-depth Bible studies and Christian worldview analysis of current events. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a rating, share it with your friends, subscribe, and we will keep spreading the word. Stay safe out there. We will catch you next time. the recon recognition or that's not even a word yes someone's out there weed whacking <laughs> hey it was the weed whacker this week it was the bird a couple weeks back you know we'll just edit it out in post mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> at least we don't have any amazon packages coming to the store